Welcome to the Behind the Bits podcast. Your host, Scott Curtis, wants to learn everything he can about stand-up comedy and take you along for the ride. Scott and his guests talk serious about comedy in every episode. Behind the Bits will uncover knowledge from different perspectives on subjects such as writing and performing stand-up comedy, as well as booking shows and the comedy life. If you're thinking about becoming a stand-up comic, already in the comic game, or a comedy nerd, Behind the Bits is the show for you. Now, let's get Behind the Bits. Hey, BTB buddies, I wanted to let you know that I have a Patreon page now so that you can support the show. Check out patreon.com forward slash BTBPC and check out the cool stuff you can get for as little as two bucks per month. You can also find the link in the show notes. Thanks, as always, for listening. I'm performing at the Plano Virtual Comedy Festival this year that runs from October 1st through the 4th. Take a listen to this info and get yourself some tickets, okay? Be honest. When was the last time you laughed at home? Wouldn't you love the chance to see live comedy? Great news. October 1st to October 4th, we've got Plano Virtual Comedy Festival. Live comedy from the comfort of your own home. We've got stand-ups from Los Angeles to New York, from Canada to Malaysia, from Conan to NBC to Fox. And on Zoom, you'll have a front row seat to every show all weekend. Head to PlanoComedyFestival.com to get yourself a weekend of hilarious comedy straight through your computer via Zoom. Plano Virtual Comedy Festival. Go to PlanoComedyFestival.com for more information. Get your tickets discounted when you buy before the end of September. Again, go to www.PlanoComedyFestival.com for tickets, lineup, and schedules. Bring the laughter back into your household. PlanoComedyFestival.com for all of your festing at home comedy needs. MediaTek Institute is a proud sponsor of the Plano Comedy Festival. All right, we're live on YouTube and Facebook. And today I've got with me Mr. Showtime David Scott, one of the most energetic performers that I have ever seen that I haven't seen live. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm totally stoked to be able to talk to you because I haven't talked to anybody of your type of comedy yet. And you're like probably my 38th or 40th interview. So it's really, it's really nice to get somebody who is a, a, a physical comedian, kind of wacky and just really a, comedian who commits to being on stage and leaves it all on the stage, just like James Brown would, you know? Uh, yeah. so, so I'm pretty stoked to be talking to you. Thanks for being on the show. I appreciate it. My pleasure, man. I appreciate having me on. I hope you, and, and I not, not to sound like an egotistical, uh, person, but I hope you never speak to another comedian like me. <laughs> my, my my whole goal was to be as unique and one of a kind as possible. Yeah, you you definitely you definitely fit the bill on that because uh I tell you what, I I've watched the Michael McDonald video probably well since last week. You're on the talk show last week, probably watched it uh ten or fifteen more times just to <laughs> just to watch how many marshmallows you shoved in your mouth and it was so, yeah, it was good. The world the world's most dangerous bit in comedy. Yeah. 
So what we're going to do today is um, I've I've actually got uh, some notes that I that I took from the talk show, but today first we've got the um, what I like to call the rapid round, where we talk about what an interviewer from Entertainment Tonight might uh, talk to you about and get those answers, and then we go off live because. My listeners really need to download the podcast and listen to it for me to get the listens and get a sponsor and all that kind of stuff. So right. I we're going to go off live and we're going to be so compelling while we are live that everybody's going to listen to it anyway. So it'll be great. So, so, this, so this is basically the teaser. This yeah, is, this, this, is the, this is the sizzle. Yeah, yeah, we're here. We're right. here. This is a sizzle reel, and here we go. Uh, so first of all, where are you from, David? Uh, I was born in uh, Queens, New York. Uh, have lived in um, L.A., Las Vegas, and I'm currently residing in uh, St. Louis, Missouri. Okay, excellent. Yeah. And when did you start doing stand-up? Wow. Well, that's a loaded question. I started performing when I was five. Mm -hmm. My dad, my dad was a, a Broadway performer, an off-Broadway performer, and uh, I started performing when I was five. My first quote-unquote stand-up show is when i was 16 okay um my first paid gig was at catch a rising star when i was 19 okay so um i became a full-time uh comedian I ne i've actually never called myself a comedian i've always called myself an entertainer mm. um 1994 after i graduated college i became a full-time entertainer okay and this this is kind of off book here, but uh, yeah, after watching what you do, you know, I wouldn't call you a stand-up. You're, I mean, you're more of. I, I was trying to think of who I could compare you to, and it's like um, uh, Rip Taylor, Sam Kinison, and the amazing Jonathan. If you rolled them all into one, and then added added you. Uh, so <laughs> that, 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 no, that's, that's great. I mean, I get the Sam Kinison one a lot. Never gotten the amazing Jonathan before. I've always thought I was more of like, um, uh, Steve Martin was one of my biggest influences yeah. as a, uh, growing up as a comedian and also Groucho Marx mm -hmm. and of course, Sammy Davis Jr. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, um, and, and to some extent, even Dean Martin, not so much Frank, but Dean as well. Um, but yeah, I, I like I like your analogy too. You know, yeah. Just a, Rip Taylor's a new one. I've never I haven't heard the Rip Taylor one either. Yeah, and <laughs> I you know growing up, I just absolutely loved him. Whenever he was, he, he oh, always no, showed he up on the variety captain. shows and. Oh, just, he was great. Wore the wig, had the little wand that was yep. shooting confetti out of. Oh yeah. Yep. Throwing the yeah, glitter and confetti. Yeah, you, yeah, your younger listeners will have to Google Rip Taylor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's there's definitely nobody like him currently doing anything. No, no, and there never will be anybody like him. That was a that was a one of a kind entertainer. Yeah. So you did mention Steve Martin as an influence, which is great because he's one of mine too. Uh, who else do you think influenced you to do the type of act that you do? Uh, well, I mean, really, um, there's also Groucho Marx, um, uh, Buster Keaton. I, I really have to go. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm 50. So I grew up in the seventies and eighties. Um, and there's no modern entertainers that I emulated. 
Mm-hmm. I was looking at, at entertainers from, you know, you know, you go back to the 1920s, you go back to vaudeville. Um, that's what I kind of grew up um, watching because a vaudeville entertainer or comedian was more than just a joke teller. They were doing other things. They mm. were juggling. They were doing magic. They were doing stunts. They were doing. They were singing. They were dancing. They weren't limited to just a boxed-in perception of what comedy is. Mm. And I was so bored watching just a comedian that when I saw someone like Steve Martin, I'm like, that looks like fun. That's something that I would like to do. How can I make how can I make money doing that for mm-hmm. the next twenty eight years? Right. So yeah, so um, yeah. I mean, so yeah. I, I really Steve Martin. Um, early on, I would say because it was the seventies. I watched uh, Mork and Mindy, Robin Williams. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't say that um, I could do his manic style of comedy, but the energy that he put into it you know, the, the commitment to the bit. Um, um, so yeah. And, you know, a little, a a little bit of Kinnison growing up a little bit of Bill Hicks. Mm -hmm. Um, because I do believe you have to have, you have to have the yin and the yang Mm -hmm. of comedy. You can't just, you've got to balance off the crazy with something, you know, grounded. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's, I, I like the Bill Hicks reference because you do have enough edginess about you and you kind of got to dig into your YouTube channel for that, uh, to, yeah. to really, to really find out who, who David Scott is. And you've been right. doing, you've been doing YouTube stuff for quite a while. I went back to some of the older ones. I, I, I like the one about marijuana that you did. Uh, I think oh, that was, yeah. that was last year. And, uh, I think yeah. you said Steve stopped calling me or whatever, but, <laughs> yeah. uh, yeah, it, it'll, yeah, I did one about marijuana. I did one about lawn darts. I did one about, um, uh, sex and music, the electric slide, you know, but yeah, but again, you're right. You balance off the wacky with something that is sort of edgy and that's how you hook people in. Right. Cause if, you, if you're just edgy, that's that that gets really irritating if you're just wacky that gets even more irritating but Mm. if you balance out the two and the key is finding that balance right and uh the 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 youtube channel is nice because it it gets to know you as as a person I, i put the link up there folks that are watching so you can step over there and if you uh actually click the link and hit the subscribe button. That's good. That's a good thing. So hit the subscribe oh my God. button. Please, thank yeah. you so much. I've, <laughs> I've been trying. I've been trying. This this uh, Showtime Talks is my uh, my only YouTube channel. Now I had other YouTube channels, mm. and um, when YouTube first started, I had a YouTube channel, and I actually had you know one video had like you know eighty thousand views or whatever. I was like, okay, this is something we can make. And then. Google bought YouTube and I lost everything. Yeah. I lost, I lost the entire channel and I was like, and I, and I've never been able to rebuild it. I've been trying to rebuild it slowly and slowly. And slowly. Mm-hmm. So this is the, so Showtime talks like, and subscribe, please. It means yeah. the world to me. And, and people of our age of our ilk, you're the ones that really need to subscribe because 
you don't want to watch those 12 year old kids with YouTube channels or TikTok. You want to watch people your own age. So yeah, Mr. My, Showtime, I, I, David I, Scott does that. Yeah. I just put a new video up this morning. Uh, it's called, it's called my at home with Mr. Showtime series. And I'm playing with the uh, evil Knievel stunt cycle. So if you're a kid from the seventies, you know, the evil Knievel stunt cycle. I yeah. bought one. I unboxed it. We played with it. It's like, it's like a walk down memory lane. You know, what's <laughs> funny. I, you sent me a message that you were in the studio and I was watching that video when you sent the message <laughs> because I, I had the evil Knievel stunt cycle. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's great. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's the things I've found being, uh, uh, out of work with uh, the COVID crisis. The um, Evil Knievel stuff, the $6 million man stuff was just fantastic. Oh, and, yeah. Oh, yeah. Good times. Yeah. Like, they're different generation, man. You know, we, uh, I, I hate to say it because it shows your age, is it? But when, when we were kids, it was basically your own imagination was your computer screen. Yeah. You know, we had, we had to create our own scenarios. We had to take our, whatever we were playing with and create our own scenarios yep. instead of now where, I mean, you're still using imagination if you're, but you know, if you're playing Fortnite or Minecraft, you know, you're put into a world and then you make the best of it. But you now we had to, we had to create that world in our backyard yeah. with sticks and sticks and rocks and lighter <laughs> fluid and matches. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I can dig that. This is one. This is one I'm asking everybody. That's kind of off topic, but uh, another podcaster does it, so I like it. Are you reading any books, listening to any music, podcasts, magazines, blogs, or anything that you like that has inspired you? Uh, I, th this is. I, I don't listen to podcasts at all. Um, it, it's. I just don't have the time to sit down and listen to a podcast. Mm. Um, I don't read much, um, like physical books, but I'll read stuff online, especially mm -hmm. history. I love, I'm a big fan of history. Um, I love, I love when I was a kid, I was really into the revolutionary war and learned all I could about that. Then I moved on to the civil war, um, and learned all I could about that. Um, what I've been doing is, um, uh, I I've been watching a TV show called the umbrella Academy on netflix i've seen that and it is a we it's it the right the guy who created it was the lead singer of my chemical romance okay and um i've never heard any of their music but it's a really bizarre wacky out there pseudo superhero tv show i just finished season two and it's spectacular it, mm -hmm. it's it's truly it's like it's like what would happen if a dysfunctional family had superpowers. Yeah. And it, 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 sometimes it's funny. Sometimes it's serious. Sometimes it's sad. Sometimes it's dramatic. It's a, it's a great show. Mm. So I've been, I've been watching that. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, I, I've never, I've never listened. I actually had tried, I tried to do my own podcast back in 2019. Mm. I did three episodes of my own podcast and I got so bored with myself. Um, <laughs> And the reason being is because I am a visual performer. Uh -huh. Podcasting is audio. You know, I mean, this is this is great. Video 
right. uh, video podcasting, this is something that is interesting to me. But like, dude, just doing an audio podcast to me is very, very boring. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a visual act. So I need to visually express myself in ways that are entertaining. I just can't talk um, about the topics of the day. Uh-huh. So, yeah. You know. And see, I'm kind of, I, I'm, I kind of ride the fence on that because I really like the audio format because it forces me, I do it like when I'm exercising or I'm driving or something like that. And it forces me to actually stop and listen to something. So I like that, but I also like the visual stuff. And that's why I do, I do this little teaser and also, um, started the talk show because I like that stuff too. So, you know, you know, right now you can do whatever you want. So I'm just going to do what I want and see what sticks and keep, keep keep it up. (laughs) Oh yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, it's all about repetition and content. That's the one thing I've learned over and I've learned. Um, I, 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 it's weird. I, I've not taken what I've learned in 27, 28 years of comedy and been able to translate all that over to social media. Mm. Um, Cause I tell everybody when uh, young comics, you know, if you want to be successful, keep on doing it. Repetition of jokes and new content. Mm. But yet when it comes to like social media, I can't apply that because my mind does not work in 60 second, you know, TikTok videos right. or, you know, put, I mean, you know, you put together um, like my vlog that I put up today, my YouTube uh, at home with was like 13, 14 minutes long. And it was one of the easiest ones I've done because I was just basically an unboxing mm. of the evil people. So then at the end, there was stuff from, you know, other things. But my other videos, you know, I film all week and put them all together and then I edit to edit it together. And sometimes it takes, you know, two, three hours to do the editing. Right. And then you put on YouTube, you get 30 views. Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> well, you know, if I mean, if I was working, if there, if there wasn't a COVID crisis, I would have quit it by now. Because I'm like, well, I'm not going to waste seven days for 30 views. Right. It's not no going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> but now I'm like, I got nothing else going on. Yeah. So I'm not, I, I'll film content every day. And on Monday night, I put it all together, edit it. And on Tuesday, it goes online. Mm-hmm. And the worst that can happen is like you totally blow up all of a sudden. You, you get that 80,000 views on one video. Then you've got all that stuff behind it that they yeah. can go back and watch. And so you've actually got yeah. a, a library of content. So that works well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, my, yeah. The last video I just put up, the one with the Evil Knievel uh, unboxing, it got copyrighted because I didn't realize I was walking through a place called Six Flags Amusement Park. And in the background, Beyonce's single ladies were playing. Oh, yeah. I, and I didn't realize it. It's the background. It's, it's, it's like it's like Muzak in the yeah. background of the uh, amusement park. And I put it online. They go, your video has been flagged for copyright infringement. They go, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah. There's no, and I, I listen back to go, oh yeah, there's 10 seconds of, ah, the single ladies, ah, the single ladies, uh-huh. ah, the single ladies. <laughs> so I, so I had to go back. I had to mute that. So if it does blow up, it at least gets monetized. Yeah, no <laughs> doubt. <laughs> that, that stuff with the, the music just drives me crazy. And the funny thing is, is I, I look for a lot of independent podcasts and I see these podcasters like using music. I mean, you're a kiss fan. So somebody will use rock and roll all night 
to right. open their podcast and they don't get flagged for it. But I know if I use 10 seconds of a Judas Priest song that I like, then I'm going to get flagged and my whole podcast is going to blow up. So I don't touch anything yeah. that is oh. licensed in any way. <laughs> no, that's, that, that's the smart way to do it. I mean, I would, if I, if I didn't want to monetize, I wouldn't give a shit, but yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but eventually I gotta go, maybe they'll blow up and maybe one of them will monetize that. Yeah. So. <laughs> Okay, so last question for the rapid round. What uh, comedy album or special would you consider to be your all-time favorite? Oh, well, it would be uh, Wild and Crazy Guy by Steve Martin. Mm -hmm. uh, probably the epitome of live comedy recordings. Yeah. Because, um, yeah, because even though you're listening to the record, you can visualize that everything's going on. Yeah. Because some, because again, he's a visual act. Steve yeah. Martin's a visual act. He puts his act on an album. This is an album, mm -hmm. um, and you can and you can visualize he's doing a thing about you know juggling cats, yeah, or playing the banjo. You could arrow through the head. You can visualize it. So yeah, I, I without a doubt, this is the this is the if you've never heard Wild and Crazy Guy, um, Steve Martin, it's brilliant. It's yeah. absolutely brilliant. So. I wore, I wore that one and let's get small out completely. Let's get small, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So those, those were great albums. Okay, folks. Well, this has been the rapid round with Mr. Showtime, David Scott. Look in the comments. I put the link to his YouTube channel, get over there and subscribe. I'd like to see those subscribers go up. And then if you want to hear the rest of this, you're going to have to subscribe to behind the bits and listen to it when it comes out. Because we're going to get into some stuff because I got notes. I don't usually have notes, and I got notes here. So <laughs> we're, we're going to go off live here and make sure to tune in after this. I've got a couple special things to talk about in the check-in, which will come out somewhere around 5, 530. So uh, we'll see you on the other side, folks. A lot of things struck out to me when, when we were talking during the um, the – BTB talk show and something came up when early on in our conversation today, you talked about your dad being a, a Broadway actor. Can you tell me what life was like for you growing up in, in that type of a family? Because I, I grew up in a, a plain old ham and agger type family. We just went to work and came home and went on vacation and stuff like that. My dad was a performer, um, and by the time I was born, he had basically retired from Broadway, but he kept on performing in a group called the High Notes. And uh, it was it was always um, when we'd have parties, when my, my dad, my mom and dad would throw parties, it was always singing and joke telling. So it was encouraged growing up to express yourself um, artistically. Mm -hmm. Uh, my dad was a singer um, more than anything else. And, uh, and my mom can sing. She just didn't want to sing in public. So, But she could sing. Um, but my dad would perform at um, venues with him and his trio. And uh, basically the stuff that, you know, Broadway show tunes, so Showboat, Fiddler on the Roof. Joseph and the Amazing Technical Dream Code, stuff like that. Um, it was a, it was really um, a great way to grow up if you wanted to be a performer. Mm -hmm. um, 
And luckily, I would watch my dad um, be at these parties and be the center of attention because he's telling jokes and people around him laughing. And I thought, I want to be that guy. Mm -hmm. I want to be the guy that everybody's around laughing because I'm telling stories, telling jokes. So I sort of drifted more towards the comedy um, and less from the the singing and dancing. Although I I do have theater background. I do have a a degree, uh, a, a theater degree, amongst two others. But um, I did learn singing and dancing and performing. But my love has always been laughter. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to say in a way that is compelling to your listeners. But my mom and dad always encouraged me to um, achieve what you were dreaming. Like mm-hmm. when I told my mom and dad after I got out of co- well, I graduated college, I told my mom and dad, I'm moving to California, I'm moving to L.A. I'm going to do stand up comedy. I just spent four and a half years in college and I'm going to take all what I've learned in college pack up my Honda, my 1982 Honda Civic and drive across the country to LA to become, become a comedian. And they were both like, this is a great idea. This is what we, we are. We, they supported me so much um, because I think deep down, my dad was like, I want you to be a performer. I want you to continue the legacy. Um, so, and my dad used to write, write jokes for me like mm. bits for me say hey i think this is funny i mean they never were but he just had so much fun living vicariously through me mm. that it was a, it was a great it, it made me and my dad even closer yeah so but yeah i mean i don't know if what it'd be like if i had no desire to be a performer living in a performer's family i would assume it'd be like a like a living hell yeah <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's that's so, great. But I, 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 always, I always remember um, Billy Crystal. Someone said, are you the class clown? Billy Crystal goes, no, I'm the class comedian. Yeah. And they, the interview goes, what's the difference? I go, the class comedian is the one that talks the class clown and doing something stupid. Yeah. And I was like. <laughs> I like that. I yeah. like that. So I consider myself a class comedian. Right. That's 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 good. And you mentioned that you really started doing your act when you were sixteen. What what, what did that look like when you were sixteen? I mean, what what type of stuff did you? Honestly, was almost like doing Steve Martin's act. Yeah. I, I mean, I was sixteen years old. I did not know the rules of comedy, which most people don't at sixteen, mm-hmm. and I was not doing his jokes. I wasn't doing verbatim his jokes, but I was, I was juggling. I was doing, um, really cheap magic tricks. Mm-hmm. I was dressing in bizarre things, putting hats on my head. You know, it wasn't the arrow through the head, but it was something, you know, like all those bopping <laughs> antennas that go back and forth. Uh-huh. Um, uh, so yeah, but, it, but it was basically a lot of me, trying to look like I was in danger, but never really in danger mm-hmm. at 16 years old. So, and so what you're describing isn't all that far off from what you do now. 
I mean, I, I know it's I know it's grown and refined and everything like that. So you pretty much found out what you wanted to do right when you started doing it then. I was in high school when and I and I went back to I can't remember it was my 20th or 25th uh, high school reunion. So I've only been to one. Um, and there was a paper that I wrote as a freshman. What do you want to be when you grow up? And I wrote, I want to be a stand up comedian. Mm. And I'm the only one that I wrote it when I was 15, 14, 15 years old, and I made it happen. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I've, this is, this is what I've known. I want to do this um, since, like I said, since I was probably 13 years old, 12, 13 years old. Um, and I just made it happen. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't realize I could make a living at it. I didn't realize that I could do this for 28 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, this is all I, this is all I've ever wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And I consider myself very lucky. Yeah. I, and I, I totally envy you because what you are doing is what I wanted to do at that time. And like I told you, I grew up in a ham and agger, small town and I became a ham and agger and didn't really start doing what I wanted to do until I was in my fifties. So, you know, yeah. but it's better, better never than late. I guess. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Better late than never. So uh, it doesn't matter how you get there, just as long as you get there. Yeah. You know, but for me, um, I knew very early on I had I had great support and I had great parents that encouraged me. Mm. And I I caught a lot of breaks that made it so that I could progress along the comedy chain mm-hmm. really fast. Right. Um, because if there was, you know, I, I mean, I honest to God, don't know how young comedians do it. I really don't Mm -hmm. because there is not enough work. There's not enough venues. The money is crap. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you're a young comic and trying to break in this business. Cause when I was in LA back in 94, I was doing 14 shows a week. Yeah. Um, and there was never a time where if I I actually didn't say to myself, I'm just not doing a show tonight. I just mm. need a break. But there were so many opportunities to be on stage mm-hmm. that you could do a show every night. Some of the shows were great. Some of the shows were crap. It, you know, that's, you know, the open mics, coffee houses, whatever. But if you wanted to be on stage 14 times a week, you could be on stage 14 times a week. Mm-hmm. And when you're on stage 14 times a week for six months, you're going to either realize you're not funny and you have no talent mm-hmm. or I got something here and I'm going to keep on pursuing it. Right. And, um, nowadays, if you've been on stage twice a month, you're lucky Mm -hmm. even before COVID, even before the coronavirus, Mm -hmm. uh, because there are just clubs aren't doing open mics anymore. There are no, you know, coffee house venues where there is an open mic on a Tuesday night at, you know, you know, Betty Jane's, uh, cupcake emporium mm-hmm. there, there are, there's no places to do shows um so i don't know how young comics are doing it i mean i guess you know they're doing these youtube things and they're blowing mm-hmm. up on youtube which i don't think is really great for comedy because having a great youtube video and having a million views when there's editing and sound effects and background music does not translate to the stage no a lot and a lot of these YouTube acts. Well, I'm going to go to the comedy club. I'm going to be a comedian on the comedy club. And they go on stage. They go, wow, this is this is hard. Yeah, so this much is, this different. Is, this, this is yeah. So 
One thing uh, I got to credit the young folks for is, you know, no matter I'm, I'm in a small town here and there's a group of younger guys getting together and they call it DIY comedy and they are making comedy happen wherever they can. So like I did, they did a show at a whiskey distillery this weekend, uh, I off the, the I, I saw the pictures of you on a loading. Yeah. Off, off the loading dock. And it sucks. It absolutely is not a comedy club, but at least they're, they're making an effort. And there was probably, there's probably 30 people there. And, yeah, I, and I mean, that, that's great. Yeah. You know, the fact that there is it, but the problem is that's a once every other month, once, yeah. once every six months type of show. Yeah. It's wonderful that they're doing it. And I applaud them because that's kind of the situation we're in right now. Um, but you cannot, you cannot improve as a performer, as an entertainer, doing one show every six months. No. It is literally impossible. Yeah. You've got to be on stage a lot. Mm. Um, it's the only way to become better at this game is right. to, like I said, repetition and content. And mm. one way to do repetition is be on stage. The only way to do content is to be on stage. So you got to hit it and hit it and hit it. That's why these um, these young performers, um, I feel for them. Mm-hmm. And, now, and it, it was hard before. It's impossible now yeah. Um, because I try to do two online virtual shows and I will never do another virtual show. Mm. They are, they're damaging to me personally, yeah. performing wise, because mm. I need an audience. Yeah. Um, try and do a show in front of nobody. It's not, you can give a speech, you can give a performance, but you can't tell jokes. Mm. Comedy is one of the very few entertainment mediums where you need to have feedback instantly from an audience. Mm-hmm. If that feedback can be good. It can be bad. It can be booing. It can be applauding. It doesn't matter. You need feedback. If you're a band performing for nobody, no big deal. That's just jamming. That's yeah. just, that's rehearsing yeah. comedy without an audience. It's, it's borderline impossible. Yeah. Did you walk away from those two that you did depressed? No, I wasn't depressed. I was, it, it became an epiphany to yeah. me, um, that comedy needs an audience. Mm. And that's why I'm concerned about comedy going forward in this, um, new world we're living in is, will there be comedy? Once, uh, once COVID is either accepted or a vaccine, because I mean, when the COVID, when the coronavirus hit in March, I was on the road. I was, I would just, I was like on week four of what was supposed to be a 16 week tour across the country Mm. and everything got, everything got canceled. Um, and then Tulsa, Oklahoma called me up and said, Hey, Tulsa, Oklahoma has allowed us to do shows again in end of June. Can you come out and do it? Second week, second or third week in June. It's like, we know we canceled you, but this is your, this was your week and we're reopening. Do you want to do it? So I, yeah, I did it. And this is when Tulsa was okay. You know, there yeah. weren't, this, this was a week before the, the, uh, the Trump rally. And mm. then of course, coronavirus blew up in Tulsa. Right. This was the week before and we had great crowds. Mm. We had great crowds. And then two weeks later I was in Kenosha, Wisconsin and people were freaking out. Shows were not, I, 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 if it was, it was 
I can't even say they were decent because the crowd was so small. Mm-hmm. And then I went from Kenosha, Wisconsin to Vero Beach, Florida in a room that holds 300 that I've sold. I do four shows and I've sold all three, all four shows at 300 people a pop. They're now selling 80 tickets yeah. and we're having a hard time selling tickets. We're having a hard time selling out. We sold out two. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went from there to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, another place where I would sell lots of tickets. And I think our biggest show was 70. That's a room that holds over 200. All right. And then I went to Chattanooga at the Comedy Catch. And again, same thing happened. Small crowds. Mm. The ones that came out were appreciative. But these clubs cannot survive with these numbers. No. And it's great. It, it's it's great that you had a show for 30 people. But the problem is 30 is going to be the number of like, all right, we got 30 people. Yeah. 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 This is we got 30 people. How we got 30 people. Mm. And I'm like, wow, this is almost like going back to the very first time I did comp back in 93, yeah. 94 in LA, where you're excited that you've got 30 people in the room. Mm. Whereas a year ago, if I'm doing a show for some 30 people, that's that is a, a nightmarishly bad turnout. That mm. makes me go, there's something wrong with me. I'm not drawing here. Mm. I can't do shows here. If I'm only drawing 30 people, I can't perform here anymore. Right. And now we're excited about 30. Mm. And it's, it's, I don't know, man. I mean, I, I, I wish there, there, there's, I've talked to so many comics. I've talked to so many club owners because I've been doing this for such a long time. I've, I've got relationships with club owners and bookers and agents and other comics. And, you know, and they all say the exact same thing. They don't know if they're going to be here in six months. Mm-hmm. They just don't know. And um, I know some comics who have just flat out said, I'm not even going to try to get back into it. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm going to work at a call center. I'm going to work. I'm going to get a job. You know, I'm 50 years old. I better get a job for the next 10 years just to make, make a living. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand it. Yeah. I understand it. I mean, you, Scott, as a prime example, you started late in life. So you're basically was just in that MC feature stage. And yeah. there's not a lot of there's not a lot of money <laughs> being an MC or a feature. No. If there's any. Yeah. You know? So what little money you were making is now gone. Yeah. And you're like, do I really do I really want to fight this fight? So yeah. I know a lot of feature acts are like going. I'm just going to get a job. Yeah. Because you, you could have met you. If you were a feature act and a road dog and you were working 40 weeks a year, 45 weeks a year on the road as a feature act, you can make a living. Mm-hmm. You're working your ass off, but you can make a living, mm-hmm. but you're living on the razor's edge one bad week. And all of a sudden can't pay my rent yep. can't pay my car payment. It only takes one bad week. And now you've had six bad months. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, and I know a lot of comics took the uh, enhanced unemployment and that was a lifeline right. for a lot of comedians. And now that's gone. Mm-hmm. And they're like, you know, what do I do now? I know a lot yeah. of comics that were living in their car before COVID. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, you talk about the young people and they're, they're so committed to doing what they're doing that they were you know, they were living in their car. They had a gym membership at Planet Fitness so they could go in and shower every morning. And, and you know, now they don't even have that. So right. you, I, I, I don't know how some of these guys are surviving. You know, I'm fortunate in that, 
you know, I've worked all my life and I don't need the money. I don't, I, there, I, I don't, I don't need comedy money unless it's going to be really big money. And so if I get comedy money now, I give it away. I give, I give it to somebody else that needs it and do it that way. But it, I would rather perform than not perform. That's for sure. So, sure. so, sure. you know, it's, it's, it's tough. Um, and I, uh, I, I, I see these kids that are still hustling and I, I see people. The funny thing is, is I do not, when I asked about being depressed after doing the, uh, online thing, uh, you know, I, I've done a few of those and I've walked away from most of them just being depressed as hell because there's two things that are hitting me. One thing is, is I'm not cut out for that. And the only way I can do it is if I play a character. Uh, so mm-hmm. I've got a conspiracy theorist character and I've got a new, um, a uh, bad comic that I wear a wig, Richard K. Weed. And so I, I do stupid, bad jokes there, but then, uh, so I can't do it. I'm, I'm never going to be effective at that medium, but right. I'm also seeing people who are really good at that medium. And that makes me believe that that medium may be the thing that comes out of this. So you're talking about the clubs closing and all that kind of stuff. I'm thinking that maybe some of this online stuff is going to be what replaces club comedy in some cases, and they're going to start taking ticket money and making money at that. And that's going to just fuck everything up for people for club comics. Yeah. Well, We've, we were already going in that direction before COVID with YouTube acts yeah. and viral videos. Um, yeah, I, I don't think there's any money to be made for the average comedian to hustle unless, of course, you have a YouTube channel that becomes very successful and you're able to monetize it and make money off the YouTube channel. But I do not see any situation uh, where – a YouTube comedy show, a weekly YouTube comedy show draws people. Mm. I, I don't, I don't see it. I mean, I, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, right. but I don't see, I don't see bands performing virtually. I don't see kiss going on tour and doing a virtual show. Mm. There is something that will never replace live entertainment. And until there is a, a vaccine or a cure or some kind of understanding of this virus, we're kind of in a holding pattern. Yeah. Um, but yeah, clubs were already competing with Netflix and YouTube and Hulu. Yeah. Um, and that, that's, that's been comedy's biggest problem is that every generation that comes along is less likely to go out and see live entertainment. Mm. Our audiences become older and older and older until, until eventually there is no audience. Mm. And we have a generation now. I mean, I've got a 23-year-old daughter. Um, who might never go to a live event. I've taken her to live events and she loves them, but she doesn't voluntarily go on her own. Mm-hmm. And if she has kids, they're going to grow up in a totally digital world. So we're two generations away from literally no live performances. Yep. And that's depressing. Yeah, it is. I'll, I'll give you that. I'll give you that's depressing, but mm. I'll be dead by then. So, <laughs> as will I. Yeah. So, 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 so that, that, that's future comedians' problem. <laughs> I 
I got, I got to, I got to figure out how to make the next. I got, I like, I had a five year plan. I never do this, but when I turned fifty, I had a five year plan to retire at fifty five. Um, because like you, in a different way, I've been very smart with money, my investments that I've made in the stock market, uh-huh. the way I save money, is that you know I'm fine. You know I'm I I mean, I mean I'd rather be performing, but I'm not. I'm not selling blood or plasma to right. buy a Big Mac. Yeah. Um, but I thought if I could make it to 55, that would give me an, a nest egg that I could retire on. And then I could just do the shows that I want to. I could really do one show a month, you know, mm-hmm. at, the, at like the like the 10 clubs that pay me a de- where I'm a special event. I could do those and just do those mm-hmm. and live very comfortably. But now it's like, it's like my retirement started five years early. I'm like, hmm. Like I, I'm not really, I, I got a five-year window where I got to make X amount of dollars. How do I make that money? This isn't so, part of the plan. <laughs> this was definitely not part of the plan. So, I mean, the, the one time I make a five-year plan and a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic. Hit. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, was like, I actually made a plan. I actually sat down, and go. These are my plans. Wrote down a piece of paper. Five years. Check, 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 yeah. check, check. And I was like, okay. Well, and 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 it started January, February, halfway through March. This plan's working great. Uh-huh. I'm kicking ass on this plan. And then boom, COVID nineteen. Plan I'll, goes. It was like, like Wiley e. Coyote and the the plunger with dynamite. Yeah. <laughs> All those check marks on one big X, and that's all you need. Um, I wanted to switch gears a little bit because you you got you got me thinking when we did the talk show that, and, and this hasn't been out of my mind since we did it. You you told me that you got inspiration for your act from the Rat Pack, yeah. and and just for just because I have to say this because I had somebody on my uh, talk show that didn't know who Dean Martin was. The Rat Pack was Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Peter Lawford, and Joey Bishop. So we had three singer performers, and Peter Lawford was an actor, and Joey Bishop was a comic. So they they were the ones that kind of ruled Vegas and and yeah, about, and about the, five years. Yeah, the stages for a long time. And you told me that the reason that you really dug them is because their whole act was kind of an inside joke and uh, they were playing to that inside joke. And that's how your act came about. Can you expand on that and, and talk about how your act became part of something that you wanted to do that would make you laugh? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, the rat pack, first of all, explain that Joey Bishop wrote everything. Mm. He was the writer. All the bits, pretty much Joey Bishop wrote. He uh-huh. was, Joey Bishop is underrated. Want to read a great book? Read Joey Bishop's "I Was a Mouse in the Rat Pack." Okay, it's a great book. Joey Bishop's book um, uh, does not get credit nearly as much credit as he deserves for um, uh, what he did. But what made the Rat Pack, and eventually it just became Frank Dean and Sammy, uh, the three of them performing. Early on, when they were filming Ocean's Eleven, Peter Lawford and Joy Bishop were there. But then after Ocean's Eleven, it was just pretty much Frank, Dean, and Sam. Mm. Uh, every now and then, Joy Bishop would show up, but Peter Lawford, by that time, he was kind of gone. Um, he had a falling out with Frank. Yeah. But um, 
But what made the Rat Pack so special was that um, they were having more fun on stage than the people in the audience were. Mm -hmm. And what they were doing is that they were letting the audience behind the curtain to see what goes on backstage. Mm -hmm. All the ribbing, all the joking, all the riffing. They took that concept of what they talk about in the dressing room or in the wings or in the hotel room, and they brought that onto the stage. Mm -hmm. So you were almost like seeing a private conversation. Right. And I thought, how absolutely awesome is that? How great is that, that you're allowing the audience to see basically a private conversation mm. because what made the rap pack so great is that um when frank is performing dean and sam are in the wings on a microphone heckling him yeah <laughs> um and they do it for all of them. There, there was one very very famous uh time in, in las vegas where no one wanted to follow sammy sammy always went last no one wanted to follow sammy Dean wanted to get off stage as fast as possible. So he always went first. Mm -hmm. Frank, who at the time was the biggest star, actually was technically the feature act for Sammy. Yeah. Um, but Dean would start the show. And Dean knew that Frank never watched his set, never watched it. So Dean went up there and sang the first three songs of Frank's set. <laughs> so Dean goes up there, sings Frank's three songs, Walks off stage, out comes Frank Sinatra, having not seen any of Dean's set. And he goes out there and he sings his songs and, and no one's applauding. He's like, we've heard all these. He can't figure out why. And then Dean and then Dean on my phone goes, oh, hey, uh, Frankie, hey, Pally, uh, I kind of changed up my set and I, uh, I sang your song. And everybody just started laughing because that's what these that's what they would do. They would cut each other up. Uh -huh. So I thought, how can I trans, how can I take that type of show being a single, not a group, but just being myself and allow people to see how my mind works in a way that I am pulling back the curtain on performing. Mm -hmm. And I have the day I quit comedy will be the day I'm no longer having fun on stage. Mm -hmm. Because I love being on stage. I, I see some comics who dread being on stage, who don't look forward to, who are bitter and, and surly. I'm like, well, then why are you here, man? <laughs> if, you, if you're surly, get away. I don't, you have no business being on stage. Um, my love of performing is what I try to present to the audience. And I let them watch my show as if they were at my house at a dinner party, would I be doing these exact same bits? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I'd be shoving marshmallows in my mouth, trying to sing what a fool believes. Mm -hmm. I'd be trying to get out of a straight track. I'd be trying to read someone's mind. You know, I'd be doing all the, I'd be trying to teach them how to play the air guitar. These are all things that I took from the Rat Pack performance of, having more fun than the audience and letting the audience 
come along for the ride. Mm. That's that's pretty much what it is. I let the audience come along on the ride. I'm not there, you know, to hitch my wagon to the audience. The audience has got to come along with me. Mm. And it's up to the audience they want to join in on the fun because I'm not coming with you. You're coming with me. Right. And you're watching something that, as you said at the very top, is hopefully that no one else is doing. Right. No one else is doing this because I like to believe that when people are watching me on stage, they're saying, I would love to hang out with that guy. Yeah. That guy'd be fun to hang out with. Mm. I, I, I bet he's just like that in the backstage in the green room. Mm. And they'd be right. So I try to I try to show that when I'm on stage. Yeah. And it's an it's an experience rather than just an act. It's it's yeah. you know, first off, you you use a crowd and you know they're they're part of the act and it's so unique and I the reason why this stuck with me so much is because, you know, I watch your stuff and I'm like, where could this stuff come from? Because, you know, I, I, I got the Steve Martin stuff and stuff like that. But the thing was, is, um, as good as Steve Martin was, I don't think the stuff that he did because he's such a philosophical guy, I don't think that stuff really made him laugh so much. Um, he was just, I mean, when you read his book, uh, born standing up, he was just trying stuff until he found out what would fit him and the audience at the same time. And, and, and you came up with, okay, these guys, the, you know, Frank and Sammy and Dean are doing all this really inside joke stuff and they're bringing it outside and they're doing stuff that makes them laugh off stage and bringing it on. And then it just made a total connection with me. I'm like, Oh yeah, that, that makes sense. And, and the funny thing is, is I feel the same way about Dean Martin. You know, I, when I decided to do that talk show, I absolutely wrote in a part for Dean Martin because he's always been my guy. And, you know, some people like Elvis and some people like Sinatra, but you know, my, my mom had the Dean Martin box set and I listened to it all the time. (laughs) I watched all the Martin and Lewis movies and then I watched Matt Helm a million times. And so, you know, I just, one of the things I absolutely loved about him and you know it from seeing him do his variety show or the roast or whatever, he did not prepare anything at all ever. He just, he just showed up and said, okay, what am I supposed to do? Where's my mark? And just did it. And I, I always thought that was cool. Yeah. Bob Newhart was a writer on the Dean Martin variety show and Dean Martin hated to rehearse. He'd Mm -hmm. read the script and then he'd go out and just do it. Yeah. Um, because he liked the spontaneity. Jackie Gleason was the same way. Jackie Gleason hated rehearsing. Yeah, um, he thought the spontaneity of it mm. was is what makes it real. Um, uh, Dean Martin is what I call sneaky funny. Yeah. Um, and what I mean by that is that he's effortlessly doing it. Mm. You know, whereas Jerry Lewis is painfully funny. Yeah. And the fact that he is trying so hard to make you laugh, it's almost painful to watch. Mm, yeah. Um, I'm not a Jerry Lewis fan because of that. You are trying so hard to make someone laugh. You are no longer funny. Mm-hmm. 
you take it too seriously. You are trying to find the mathematical equation to a joke. This is why I don't believe in there's a controversy. And I've heard this my entire comedy career laughs per minute um, yeah. in comedy and biggest bunch of bullshit I've ever heard in my entire life. Laughs per minute is bullshit. And I will argue with anybody who says it differently. Uh-huh. Um, Cause Jerry Lewis was a laugh per minute guy. Yeah. And because of that, he was pained. It was painful to watch. It was hard to watch, especially in the nutty professor where he's basically doing a Dean Martin ripoff yeah. uh, character. Um, painfully funny. Dean was sneaky funny. Mm-hmm. You'll laugh more watching Dean Martin than you will Jerry Lewis, and that isn't even a debate because Dean is effortless. Mm-hmm. I, I and, and it may seem like he doesn't care. He does care. He's a pro. Yeah, he's a professional. He just makes it look effortless, and that's the genius of Dean Martin. He's right. effortless in it, so sneaky funny. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Dean's the Dean. Dean had so much talent. Dean did Dean did some of the best impressions of Hollywood actors, and no one even knows that he did impressions. Yeah, he was a great he was a great impersonator. He did great impressions. Uh-huh. You know, one of the greatest crooners that's ever lived. Yeah, love it. And a crooner is not a singer. Yeah, there's a difference. Yeah, great crooner, um, but he's also funny. Mm. He was so funny. He was a triple threat, and he made it look easy. Yeah, he just made it look easy. Yeah. Um, that's why he's yeah he's he's a, he's wonderful yeah. he's absolutely the best if you if you want to emulate somebody you dean martin is a, a good person to emulate. yeah <laughs> the only the only problem is is i'm getting young people on the show and some of them just don't know who he is so that's, that's a shame yeah man that's a shame <laughs> yeah i i talked to some young comics right now who who don't know you know richard Pryor, don't know bill hicks don't know sam kinnison you know mm. it's and, and and I get it, you know. They're talking about, oh, I watched, you know, Josh 2.0 or Gaffigan or mm. you know, is like these other comedians. And that's fine. There's there's always got to be the next generation. Right. When I got into the, when I got into this business, I knew eventually I was going to be pushed out by the next generation. Mm-hmm. That's that we ha- we have a finite number of years on stage, and how we utilize them is up to us because the next generation is going to push us out and they're not even going to think twice about it because I pushed comics out because mm. I was a young comic. I was the one coming up the ladder. Right. My show was pushing other headliners out of their spots because they couldn't follow me. Right. That's the, that's the business. Yeah. And I know that eventually I'm going to be pushed out by some young comic and I've known this for 25 years. Mm-hmm. I've known that for 25 years, eventually I'll be pushed out. Hasn't happened yet because, again, hopefully no one's doing what I'm doing. Right. But I'm hopeful that maybe I'll retire on my own terms. Mm-hmm. But we are all going to be pushed out. And then those young comics are going to be pushed out eventually by yeah. themselves. We, we, all, <laughs> we all get replaced. We are, we are all replaceable. And, yeah. Um, and sometimes history gets lost in the, the history of Groucho Marx, Busty Keaton, Charlie Chaplin, Steve Martin, Dean Martin. Uh, they get lost. Yeah. They get lost in the uh, Robert Klein, oh. Richard Lewis. They yeah. get lost and they get forgotten. Mm. And, and, and the next generation, you know, shows up. And, you know, it's funny. I get to talk to a lot of 
young comics doing this and also in the clubs. And it's funny, you get the, you get the ones who don't know any of them. I mean, they wouldn't know Bill Hicks if you, if right. you put, put his act up in front of them. They don't know, they don't know Lenny Bruce. They don't know all of them. You talked about uh, Robert Klein, Shanling, just none of them. Yeah. And then there's other ones who are so young. I interviewed this guy from Chicago, and he knows all of them. And, you yeah. know, he's talking about Moms Mabley and, and, and stuff like that. And so some of them do go back and they study and uh, get they, they understand. But yeah, every those, generation. Those ones, watch, those ones you have to watch out for because those are the ones that are going to become very good. They're, yeah, they're, they're smart because they're, they're looking at what works because uh, one of the things that I've noticed is, you know, there isn't, there isn't a whole lot of anything new being invented. We don't have any Andy Kaufman's uh, running right. right now. Um, you know, we've got a lot of Lenny Bruce's. We got a lot of people trying to be Lenny Bruce and, uh, George Carlin. and yeah. And George Carlin. And then we've got you who is so weird and unusual that nobody's doing anything like you are, but very, very few people are like you. I mean, most people are just doing standard standup and they are emulating somebody that came before them. Right. I, th that's the thing I tell young comics right now is that, um, they're trying to be Lenny Bruce. They're trying to be George Carlin. They're trying to be Richard Pryor. They're trying to be, um, Hicks. Um, but they're forgetting the, the one thing about those guys is that they were funny first. Yeah. Then they made their point. Mm -hmm. The young comics today are not being funny. Yeah. They're just being controversial. They're just saying their opinions. Mm -hmm. There's no joke. Yeah. You know, you got to be funny first. Then you can take the audience down your, your rabbit hole right. of mind thoughts. I always uh, recommend the new comics to listen to Carlin's albums in order. Because you see how he changed. He went from yeah, yeah. hippy dippy went from the hippy dippy weatherman yeah to um, this uh, philosophical you know oracle yeah you know mm -hmm. and near the end George Carlin was not funny he just was not funny yeah. his last appearance on the Tonight Show was a train wreck yeah he was not funny because George Carlin had forgotten the number one rule is funny first. Yeah. He was not being funny. He was just being an angry white, an angry old white guy. Yeah. <laughs> and the crowd was like, you used to be funny. Like the seven words you can't say on TV. Yeah. Even though it was a political statement, it was funny. Mm. You know, you want to listen to a great, I'm, I, again, I'm not quite sure what our, what the rating of this uh, podcast is, oh, but if you want to hear, if you want to hear a great Carlin bit, um, Google fuck of the mountain. Okay. Um, it is a great bit and it's about the word fuck and it is just, it's just an awesome bit and it's, it's funny and yet it's poignant and yet it's logical. Mm -hmm. He hits, he hits every single beat and then he kind of stopped hitting all the beats yeah. near the end, but he already had, but he had, he already paid his dues. He right. already, you know, he, he could do whatever he wanted, yeah. but he was not. It's like Dave Chappelle right now is not really funny. Mm. Uh, 
because he's not trying to be. He's trying to be a truth teller. Yeah. Um, he's not really very funny. He's telling you what's on his mind. Sometimes it's humorous, but most times it's just like, you know, you could have heard this at a TED talk or mm. at a professor at a Ivy League college. It's not really funny. Right. But he's already paid his dues. It doesn't have to be funny. Right. He doesn't have to do, he doesn't have to do an hour of getting stoned material. Mm. He's earned he's earned his stripes. And some um, of the things that are coming from him, when you hear it out of his mouth, it actually lands and it can actually change people's minds. So, you know, it's still important, even even right. even oh, yeah. if the laughs aren't there. Yeah, I'm not saying that, but he's no longer a comedian. Right. You know, people say, oh, I saw Chappelle's comedy special on Netflix when it dropped after um, the Black Lives Matters protest. Mm. He dropped a special, uh, a surprise comedy special. There was no comedy in yeah. that at all. Yeah. Calling it a comedy special is, if I was Dave Chappelle, I'd be in the comedy. No comedy at all. Mm. And and I think, uh, and I don't know Dave Chappelle. I've never met him, never had any interaction with him. But he wasn't doing comedy. He was doing social commentary. Right. And I think that was much more powerful if they had called it such instead of calling it a comedy special. But there was no jokes. Mm. And that's what George Carlin was doing near the end. That's what Bill Hicks was doing near the end of his life. That's what Sam Kinison was doing near the end of his life. Mm. They were doing social commentary. And every now and then there'd be a little joke in the middle, but it wasn't comedy. I watch a lot of Bill Hicks interviews and he was such an angry man. I, there was so much anger in that guy. And, uh, I mean, he was a genius too. He was, he was angry at the United States. Yeah. He was, he he was angry at the United States. I think part of it was that he was angry that he was a God in Europe, Mm -hmm. but yet he comes to the United States and no one would pay to see him. Yeah. And that, and that made him angry. Dangerous Mm -hmm. is a great comedy album. Bill Mm -hmm. Hicks is dangerous. Yeah. Maybe one of the top five albums, comedy albums of all time. Mm. It's just brilliant. Yeah. You know, but yeah, he was, he was, uh, he was angry. He was angry at Dennis Leary. Uh, he was angry yeah. at, uh, uh, you know, other, um, other, uh, club owners, but you could also be self-destructive and Bill Hicks kind of self-destructed himself. Mm. You know, he'd be booked at a comedy club Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, not show up till Friday. Yeah. You know, so, you know, you, you, you can, you can poison yourself and you can, Mm. you can sabotage your career and Bill Hicks and to an extent actually kind of sabotage his own career. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know what would have happened if he had not gotten cancer and he not passed away. I don't know if he would, I don't know if he would have become that Oracle social commentary kind of performer. Um, He was definitely heading that way, Mm. but um, yeah, but he sabotaged you know, self-inflicted wounds are the worst wounds. Yeah. You know, when, yeah. when you selfish, when you self-inflict them. Yeah. And it's like, God, I mean, I've done it to myself. I've done it recently. Yeah. Um, where I did something that was, uh, it was self-inflicted. I go, what the, what the shit is wrong with me? Yeah. You know, just <laughs> God, you know, it's, it's, it's like one of those situations I like go why'd you do that? Yeah. You didn't have to. You didn't have to do that. It was so unnecessary. It was self-inflicted, and I'm, and I'm still trying to make up for it. You know, I'm still trying to, you know, trying to fix it. Yeah. But it was self. It was self-inflicted. Yeah. And I'm like, God damn, I'm a, I'm a moron. 
<laughs> so you know it, it it's it's yeah if, if you young comics out there here's the thing anybody's listening right now um you are going to make so many mistakes and you are going to fuck up so many times just don't repeat them yeah. everybody's allowed to fuck up mm-hmm. everybody's allowed to make a mistake everybody's allowed to burn a bridge I've burned bridges and I don't regret the bridges that I've burned because they deserve to be burned. Uh, you know, you know, but if you do something and you know, you fucked up, don't do it again. Yeah. Learn from it. Learn from the mistake. Learn from the wound that you caused you, you caused yourself. Um, that's, we're all going to make mistakes. Mm. I learned very on the only thing you can call you. The only thing you can truly call your own are your mistakes. Mm. Those are yours. Those are yours forever. If you, then you are going to be a better person. You'll be a better entertainer if you learn from the mistakes. Yeah. If you realize that there is a bunch of bachelorettes at the comedy show and you call the mother of the bride the C word <laughs> and the crowd turns on you, don't do it again. Yeah. <laughs> You've learned your lesson, all right? You thought you you thought the crowd was going to be on your side and then yeah. called the mother of the bride the C word. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, guess what? Now the club isn't going to book you. You just walked 18 people. Yeah. The, the owner is pissed because they want the drink money. Yeah. Guess what? You, you made a mistake. Mm-hmm. Don't do it again. Right. Find a better word. Find a better <laughs> way. Because there isn't a male comic out there who has not used the C word on stage at one time in their career to describe um, a situation with a female or a group of females. We've mm-hmm. all been there. Yeah. Every comic has been there. And we all think, I'm going to make it funny. I'm the comic. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the I'm the, the first comic in history who's going to use the C word against a woman. And I'm going to be, geez, I'm going to be, I'm going to be lifted on the shoulders of the town people and march down the street in a parade. I'm going to be that guy. Guess what? You're not. Yeah. You're not going to be that guy. That's great advice. So, to, to wrap things up, you know, I, I got to know you a little bit for the talk show and we've been talking here. Have you ever done this or ever thought about teaching, uh, comedy because you've got such a unique perspective of it. You, a lot of what stand up comics, one of the biggest mistakes they make, uh, well, some of them is timing, uh, presentation, and, um, having, having the right material, material that fits who they are. So have you ever thought about getting into the teaching aspect? I have, I did. I taught, um, a one day I actually lectured at the university of Iowa, um, to, uh, to about 300, uh, students, um, about the art of comedy. Um, that was interesting. Um, I have helped young comics. I'm always willing to give advice, um, to, I know, um, you know, we, we, we plugged the shit out of him. Joel, Joel Byers in the hot breath. I did a, uh, I did a podcast kind of like this where we talked about the uh, business of comedy. Uh Um, I, I, I thought about doing it. I actually was, I actually was actually in the process of creating a comedy class, a comedy school here in St. Louis when COVID hit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of 
went to the wayside. Um, yeah, I've, I've definitely thought about it. I've thought about teaching the, the performance aspect of comedy, mm-hmm. you know, um, I can teach, I can, I can teach anybody how to write jokes, jokes, jokes to me are easy. Um, I know it sounds arrogant, but writing a joke to me is not a problem. Mm. It's performing the joke. Right. Is what makes it go from paper to stage. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there is enough people being taught the art of performance. Because mm. I can write I can write a five minute monologue right now and give it to you and have you read it. Will it be funny? Yeah. But if I touch how to perform it, it's gonna be something truly right. special. Yeah. So I would love to teach people how to perform comedy. Mm-hmm. Because you don't have to be like me. And my kind of point, you can stand behind the microphone and just tell jokes. Right. But I'll teach how to perform in such a way that just standing there, you'll get big laughs because I'll teach how to perform. I'll teach how to use inflection. I'll teach how to use pausing. I'll teach how to use timing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've definitely thought about it. The opportunity has not really arisen for me to do that. Mm-hmm. But I've thought about it. And, I've, and I have helped out um, numerous comics throughout my years. Mm-hmm. Um, I told this to I've told this to a lot of people. Um, I love performers, young comedians, and by young I mean number of years in the business, not age wise. Right. Because I consider you a young comedian. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I love young comedians with passion. Mm-hmm. You cannot teach passion. Right. Without passion, you've got nothing. Yeah. So if I see somebody with passion, if I see a young comedian with passion, I will help them more than somebody who's just doing it because eh, I've got nothing else to do on a Thursday night. So I thought I'm going to do an open mic night. Hey, I'm glad you're having a good time, but I don't have time for you. Yeah. I'm glad you're, I'm glad you got last got your fun, but I'm not, I'm not going to help you. Mm. I need somebody with passion. Some of that sees this as, you know, the, the art that it truly is. Mm. And a lot of people don't consider comedy an art form and it really, really is. Mm. And, so when I see passion, I'll always help out passion. Right. I'll always help out somebody who's got passion. Yeah, you you impress me as somebody who, uh, first of all, you, you talk about your love of history and you're able to talk about especially the history of comedy and the history of performing, but also you are very invested in the performance part. And just to give you an example, I had one of uh, – an old school comic, his name is Lou Deck, and he was one of uh, Mitzi's, one of Mitzi's uh, originals at the comedy store. And he he looked at a tape of mine, and he's the only person that ever gave me criticism on the way I took the stage and the way I left the stage. And he said, you know, you didn't command the stage, you didn't do anything memorable when you left, so everything in between makes you forgettable. And and so that, you know, just those notes totally changed the way I take the stage and the way I leave the stage. And Absolutely. but no nobody else did that. And you would be the type of person who would notice that type of thing. You you gotta no matter what your way is, I mean, you can be somebody who runs up on the stage or you can be somebody who takes the mic out in a certain way or leaves the mic in, goes to a certain part of the stage. It becomes your signature move and it, it becomes memorable. And you are somebody who not only knows that, but can articulate it. 
And I've seen that just in the, in, in the short time that we've spent together over the last week. And, and that, that is something that a lot of people don't have. There are a lot of people who know what you know, but they, and they can do their act, but they can't articulate it because they are so wrapped up in either their own act or they just don't have what it takes to say the stuff out loud. Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, it's some, and some uh, people just aren't cut out to, um, give advice or give feedback. Mm. They don't know how to do it. I mean, I, I very rarely, if someone asks me for, Hey, can you watch my set? I tell them I'll happily watch your set, but do you want me to give you advice or just want me to tell you what you want to hear? Right. Cause I'll do both. Yeah. You know, like, I want to give advice. I go, if you ask me, if you want me to give you a critique of a show, just know I'm not going to blow smoke up your ass. Yep. All right. <laughs> If I think, and I told, I've told young comics, I go, listen, I'll, I'll be right now. If you just want to be like, no, just tell me what I want to hear. I go, hey man, just, and if, if, if I hear that, I go, Hey, just, uh, just keep writing. Yeah. That's my, that's my advice to somebody who just wants to hear what they want to hear. Yeah. Just, just keep writing. If you hear a comic that says, yeah, man, just keep writing. That means that you're not doing a very good job. Yeah. That's, yeah. that, that's, that's code for yeah. you're really quite bad. At yeah. It, I was you know? so, I was so happy the Lou, I mean, Lou, pretty much ripped me a new one uh when when and we did it over the phone we didn't we didn't even do it video wise and we did it over the phone but at the end of it he says you know at the end of this i probably give you an 87 and he says i don't give too many people 87s but you know i had i i had a book like this and i probably had six pages of notes that he gave me and yeah. it's just it's it's really good when somebody Lou, is honest yeah, Lou and knows stuff. yeah Lou knows his stuff yeah this is what somebody says you know, yeah he's a, he he knows he's been there he's fought the battles he's been in the trenches he knows what works he he certainly knows what doesn't work yeah so yeah yeah he, yeah, he, yeah good guy to good guy to get some feedback from absolutely yeah no doubt well this has been a good talk David and uh, I want I want to uh, kind of bookend we talked about how to. Uh, get to your YouTube channel, but, uh, anything that you want to direct our listeners to, I know you've got a website and the YouTube channel. Where, where do you want the listeners to go to see your stuff? Well, like I said, uh, always ask for is the website. Mm. It, it, it used to be full of tour dates, not anymore. Uh, <laughs> but from always ask for more.com, you can go to my Facebook page, my YouTube page, my Instagram page. All the links are up there okay. or just go straight to my YouTube page, Showtime talks, youtube.com forward slash Showtime talks. And there's a bunch of videos. It's, it's kind of freewheeling. It's meant to be fun. It's meant to be interesting. Uh, I do a thing. I did a thing called the Monday monologue that's on there. That was, uh, that was basically an exercise for myself. Mm. writing current events, writing, mm. writing current event humor, which is something that I do not do. Yeah. So I just wanted to prove to myself that I could do it. Yeah. That I could do like a, a talk show monologue-esque type of mm. um, performance. So it was kind of like, you know, an exercise. Cause even I need to, uh, you know, expand my comedy muscle and try doing different things here and there just to see what I'm good or 
if I if I can do it. Mm. Um, the Monday monologues up there, and of course the at home series and on the road with series, they're up there as well. And uh, like and subscribe, people. That's uh, you know, it's kind of the world we're living in right now. I mean, <laughs> I've got great fans. I have built up a grassroots fan base. That once you see the show, you come back again and again because I make the show so worthwhile. I make it worth your money. If you're spending money to see me, you're not going to get ripped off. Yeah. You're going to be like, that was worth $20. Yeah. That was worth $15. That was worth whatever, the, but that, that was worth it because I leave it all on stage. Yeah. You're and, like an um, athlete up there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I believe in giving the crowd the show that they deserve. Mm-hmm. And whether 30 people or 300, you're going to get the full show. You're going to get it all. I never take a night off. I never go, oh, my God, 30 people. Well, I'm not going to do these three bits. Nope, <laughs> I'm going to do the show because those 30 people came out to see me and they're going to get the show that they paid for. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's been fantastic talking to you and getting to know you a little bit better. You're you're one of those guys that uh, there's. I, I'm so glad I got you on the show because there there ain't nobody like you. So uh, <laughs> it's it's a good good notch in my uh, belt for that one. Well, it was it was thanks for having me on and on the interview show as well. It's been a blast, and uh, you know, stay in touch, man. Yep, thanks a lot. <laughs>